This is Stacey Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live from our homes via the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. Rebecca Clayfish has officially announced her candidacy in the race for governor of Wisconsin. Clayfish, a prominent Republican, is a former Wisconsin lieutenant governor in Scott Walker's administration. In a campaign video released today, Clayfish attacked Governor Tony Evers for his handling of the COVID-19 pandemic and the police brutality protests last summer. One other Republican, Jonathan Wichman, has declared his candidacy for the 2022 gubernatorial election, and several others have formed exploratory committees or publicly expressed interest. Current Democratic Governor Tony Evers has declared his candidacy for re-election, although without his current Lieutenant Governor, Mandela Barnes. Barnes is running in a crowded field to be the Democratic nominee in Wisconsin's 2022 U.S. Senate race. The partisan fight continues over whether a top Department of Natural Resources official must step down. The protracted fight stems from a refusal by the DNR Policy Board Chair Fred Prane to step down, though his term expired on May 1st. Prane was appointed by former Governor Scott Walker. He maintains he does not need to step down until his replacement is confirmed by the GOP-controlled Senate. The change would tip the political balance of the DNR board into the Democrats' hands. And today, the chairman of the DNR board's policy canceled a meeting after being told no DNR officials would attend it, reports the Associated Press. State Republicans have reintroduced an abortion-related bill in the legislature, which received a hearing yesterday, or I think that was today, actually. Called the Born Alive Bill, the measure addresses the rare case of failed abortion procedures and requires medical care for the fetus. Failure to provide that care could result in hefty fines and felony charges. The proposal made it through the Republican-controlled legislature in the last session, but was vetoed by Democratic Governor Tony Evers. Wisconsin Public Radio reports that there were no testimonies against the bill in this week's hearing. However, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin, and the Wisconsin Coalition Against Sexual Assault were among the groups that registered against it. Public Health Madison in Dane County announced an extension of local mask policies. Starting tomorrow through October 8th, anyone age two and older will be required to wear a mask indoors while with people who are outside of your household. Dane County Executive Joe Parisi encouraged people to take common sense precautions and says, quote, at this point in the pandemic, we all know how to help stop the spread of the illness by getting vaccinated, wearing masks indoors, going outdoors when you can, and distancing yourself from others. The new public health order carves out special rules for artistic performances in which vaccinated artists, including those who use wind instruments with covers, may be exempted. A Dane County judge has ruled that three local journalists, including a WORT reporter, must testify in an upcoming trial against two women accused of attacking State Senator Tim Carpenter last summer during police brutality protests. In a hearing this morning over whether the state's reporter shield law applied to such testimony, Judge Roseanne Reynolds ruled that the information was necessary and not obtainable from other sources even though none of the reporters can identify the attackers. 
The three reporters are being served with subpoenas to testify are WORT's own Sholly Pittman, Isthmus reporter Dylan Brogan, and WKOW reporter Lance Vieser. An attorney representing all three reporters maintains that the eyewitness testimony of the attack is obtainable elsewhere, and he tells WKOW that the DA didn't do his job to find other sources of information. Assistant District Attorney Paul Humphrey maintains that the reporters are the only three viable witnesses he could find. This trial is scheduled for mid-October. A touring taco festival slated to visit Madison this Saturday may get called off after negative publicity and vocal unhappy customers. The Arizona-based event planning company AZ Food Festivals has held several recent taco festivals in Iowa, North Dakota, New York, and Pennsylvania, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Those events generated a wave of unhappy taco lovers. Attendees described long lines, lack of options, and an overall lack of organization, and in a few cases, food poisoning. A spokesperson involved in event planning at Bree Stevens Field, where the taco event is in Madison is slated to take place in two days, says it may be called off due to the wave of negative press. And now for today's COVID-19 numbers. Today, the state reported 32 COVID-19 related deaths. Now that's the largest daily total of COVID deaths since mid-February, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The seven-day average of COVID-19 cases is at 1,496 confirmed cases per day. And meanwhile, the seven-day average of new deaths stands at 11. 55% of Wisconsinites have received a dose of the COVID-19 vaccine as of today. The percentage of fully vaccinated Wisconsinites is just slightly lower at 52%. Dane County has the highest vaccination rate in the state with about 70% of the county being fully vaccinated. And now on to today's top stories. In the spring of 2020, Schools across Wisconsin went virtual. The sudden pivot to online learning left many students feeling isolated and disconnected. Now, as Madison's K-12 students return to class, some are pushing hard to make up for lost time. Our producer, Jonah Chester, takes us from here. Students with developmental disabilities are working hard to get back on track after a year of virtual instruction deprived them of in-person education and programs that are essential for their development. Many parents and special ed teachers had a difficult time adjusting classes for disabled students. Andrea Rupar, an assistant professor of special education at UW-Madison, says there was no existing guide for teaching those students virtually. We never gave a thought to how would we teach a student with a developmental disability remotely prior to this pandemic. It wasn't part of our research because all of our, um, all of our evidence-based practices for providing instruction to kids with developmental disabilities has to do with um, very intensive instruction that involves various kinds of prompts. And the prompts might be verbal prompts or gestural prompts are actually assisting a child to complete a task until they're able to do this independent, do it independently. And those kinds of things clearly we, we can't do over remote instruction. Beth Swedeen is the executive director of the Board for People with Developmental Disabilities, a group that advocates for Wisconsinites with disabilities. She says the long-term impact of virtual education and the accompanying isolation is still being determined. The big thing, though, is that families were really worried 
uh, about the social isolation for their kids because they they really need that practice and that engagement and that interaction. And then it was really hard to explain to children who, you know, love the routine and who love the the interaction in schools that, you know, things were on pause and then just were on pause over and over and over again. And so, you know, a lot of families reported regression in not just academic skills, but, you know, in behavioral things. Margarita Rubio, a parent of a student with developmental disabilities, says that when Madison's schools pivoted online last year, it felt like her son was left by the wayside. Many students were not able to participate in the other activities that the kids were doing. Um, Virtual schooling was pretty much non-existent in some households because of their challenges and difficulties. Many, many children lost so much. They regressed versus pushing forward, and now the school year is going to be extra difficult and extra hard for them. Rubio is a member of Madtown Mamas and Disability Advocates, a four-mom coalition that acts as a go-between for parents of students with disabilities and MMSD administrators. She says that district leaders are trying to meet the individual needs of disabled students. They really are trying, yes. They are trying. We are keeping the lines of communication open. It just varies. There's just so much. Not only are the you know, parents and the children stressed and overloaded, the staff are as well. And with the new superintendent, Dr. Carlton Jenkins, who's been very receptive with our reaching out, you know, we've just been really, really trying hard to make sure that these needs are known. Martha Ciravo, the president of Madtown Mamas, says the district has gotten better at addressing the needs of students with disabilities since the pandemic began. I think there's been a lot of awareness that's been raised, but I also think that they're starting to listen. Last year, we fell into a hole and there was not a lot of messaging and there was not a lot of clear messaging around what a student who needed that individualized support, what do they actually need, not only with their academics, but their social experiences too. The Madison Metropolitan School District, in response to surging COVID-19 cases, has instituted a number of new health protocols to prevent spreading the coronavirus. That includes a masking policy, a pending vaccine mandate for district staff, and a virtual education option for some students, which filled up less than a week after enrollment opened. Saravo says that many parents who applied are weighing whether or not to commit to the virtual program or in-person instruction, neither of which is an easy choice. The virtual option may mean further depriving the students of in-person interaction, but developmentally disabled students' ability to tolerate masks is also an issue. But I know a lot of people are more comfortable going back because of the mask option, but it really does depend on how the student, how they handle wearing the mask for a full day. All of these issues are further compounded by near-stagnant special education funding from the state. In his 2021 through 2023 state budget, Governor Tony Evers proposed covering 50% of school special education spending. The Republican-controlled state legislature slashed that proposal, and now the state will only reimburse up to 30% of special ed spending. That's a modest increase from the 28% funding rate approved in the 2019 state budget. That 2019 agreement, which raised the funding rate up from 25%, was the first time Wisconsin had increased special education funding in more than a decade. Heather Dubois-Bornan, the executive director of Wisconsin's Public Education Network, which is a group that advocates for teachers and students, says those modest increases don't go far enough. She says that Wisconsin school districts now have to cover the increased cost of pandemic special education with what is essentially the same amount of money as they had pre-pandemic. Districts 
are forced to fill the gap by taking funds out of their general funds. And so statewide, that gap amounts to over a billion dollars a year that districts are spending out of their general funds to cover those costs. Bornan says that over the past several decades, the state has been covering less and less costs associated with special education. In the mid-80s, we actually reimbursed that 100% one year. We have been on a downward trajectory ever since and now are at, you know, an embarrassing low of, of 30%. One person affected by those cuts is Margarita Rubio's son, Joshua. In 2019, he testified before the state's budget committee on the impact diminishing special ed funding has had on his school experience. My school needs more people to help with the kids. If I had someone there for me, I would do better in class. It's hard to keep it together when I get bullied. It hurts me so much when kids say and do mean things that I want to run into the road and kill myself. If there were more aides and teachers, they would see the kids being mean to me. As districts work to get developmentally disabled students back into classrooms, Bornan says that each child should be approached individually, as opposed to using a one-size-fits-all method. Some of the talk that we're hearing about so-called learning loss, I think is really not helpful, right? Our kids haven't lost anything. Our kids are exactly where they are, right? And we need to meet them there. And so whether or not we have were able last year to provide every everything that our kids needed, which we know we weren't, right, when we were dealing with this pandemic situation, all the kids have struggled in various ways. We, we don't want to fall into the trap of trying to standardize something that's very unique to each child. Andrea Rupar, the assistant professor of special education at UW-Madison, has two points of advice for how parents and teachers can help meet the needs of students with developmental disabilities. Rupar says that while transitioning back to in-person school, establishing daily routines for students and prioritizing communication opportunities when possible are essential. She says that both of those areas were heavily affected by the pandemic and virtual education. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester. It's now 6.20 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Do you know those big parking structures downtown? Do you call those things parking ramps or parking garages? This week on Isthmus on Wart, producer Jonah Chester and Isthmus reporter Dylan Brogan get to the bottom of a uniquely Madison mystery. So in this month's edition of Isthmus, you have a story that delves into a surprisingly divisive issue. That is the issue of garage versus ramp. Now, help me understand this debate here. Where, where did this story spring from? Well, I, I've been working on the story probably far too long, Jonah. <laughs> but at some point during the pandemic, I realized that 
the Madison parking utility was calling all of its ramps garages. Now, I'm from Madison, and it's just always been called a ramp. And I remember uh, going to college in D.C. for a few years and everyone being very confused when I said that. But here in Madison, we call those parking structures that are above ground, we all know they're downtown, parking ramps. But I learned that like 10 years ago, the Madison parking utility decided they weren't going to call them ramps anymore because visitors were confused. So on their website and they really internally, they've really tried to uh, change the terminology for these parking structures away from ramp into garage, but they have been unsuccessful in my opinion. Hmm. Yeah, for what it's worth, I'm from I'm not from Madison, not from Wisconsin at all. I'm from Indiana, and I call them parking garages. Well, and I would respect in Indiana where you just, you know you told me earlier where you're from that that's what you call them, and I wouldn't put ramp on you. <laughs> Like we wouldn't be, we're not. This to is, be clear, I'm not trying to enforce garage on you. I'm just providing the. I'm providing the other perspective. I, I know Jonah, but the market, the Madison Parking Utility is trying to enforce garage on people in Madison who have long since the 40s. There, I found newspaper articles referencing parking ramps in the 40s. We've been calling them. This is like an 80-year history. How long have you been working on this story for? Apparently, decades. <laughs> But uh, I just, I do feel rather more, I don't know, I'm usually pretty objective about what I report on, but I do feel very strongly about this because it feels like they're this teeny tiny, is this the biggest deal in the world? Of course not. It's not. But why are they erasing our local like vernacular, our culture, if you will, of, of call? And you, by the way, it doesn't work. I talked to three different mayors for this story. <laughs> all right. Mayor Chess Levitch, in which the change happened, uh, a little tongue-in-cheek, but he was outraged because he didn't even know about it. He didn't even know that the Madison Park Utility uh, unilaterally decided to change it from ramp to garage. Then I talked to Mayor Soglin. Without prompting, he called it a parking ramp with just in another interview. He didn't have anything else yet. And then I talked to <laughs> Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway, who is the current mayor, and she said before she was elected, she would have called it a ramp, but she has since been instructed that the proper phrase is parking garage. And, you know, she respects city staff, as a, a good mayor should, and she's trying to go along with this uh, terminology that the parking utility wants. But what's her natural instinct? To call it a darn ramp, because that's what it is. Okay, so so walk me through. We touched on it there a minute ago, but I feel like we should play the side of the parking utility here. Talk me through more of their logic. Was there really that much confusion between visitors of ramp and garage? It's hard to say. I'll tell you, I won't say they were evasive, but it took me a <laughs> long time to get someone from the Bazin Parking Utility to call me back on this. But they confirmed, yeah, about a decade ago, it's this Bill Knoblick, and I, I apologize, Bill, if I mispronounce his name. He's the former parking utility manager, but he left like five years ago and moved to Florida. And I can't tell you how hard, Jonah, I tried to get this guy on the horn, okay? It was not what, like... You I couldn't get Ismus to cover the cost of the plane ticket down to Florida. I tried calling his family. Like, I was determined to figure out how this one man decided this was a good idea. And you know what I find even more perplexing? If you actually go to a parking ramp or a garage downtown, there, nowhere does it say ramp or garage. It just has a P. So the idea that it was so confusing to visitors... I'm baffles me. Now, was it some SEO website thing? Maybe. Maybe there's good reason. But uh, hey, 
simple explainer saying, hey, welcome to Madison. By the way, we call them ramps. Don't be confused. It's just the place you park. It has the big P in front of it. We'll put that all of that copy on the like welcome to Madison population, right? whatever. Yes. We call them ramps, and not by garages. The way, it makes sense. They're a series of ramps, okay? A garage, I could see underground, a door next to a, a house or a residence. I yeah, mean, house garages garage. are also above ground, though. So, but I think this is very specific above ground, multi structured parking uh, ramps that are sort of open air, but not quite. And they have ramps connecting the whole thing. If they had elevators, we could talk about what you want to call them. But yeah, but the, the ramp is the object that is in the facility. That would be like calling my, if I, if I had a garage at home, that would be like calling my garage at home a, just a car because it, it is in the facility. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm giving air to the other You've side. You've clearly here. been on the Madison Reddit uh, discussing the sort of the etymology. You know, surprisingly, of all this. I have not. <laughs> no, hey, we can all. Who knows why we call things what we call things, okay? But there's an 80 year history here. I think it's nice. Aren't we allowed to call it? What if it's so, it's so weird? Maybe it's just a bizarro thing we do here in Madison. Yeah, we call them ramps. And does it make a lot of sense? It doesn't have to, Jonah. It's just what we do. And who what, who the heck does the Madison Parking Utility think they are just erasing our local vernacular like this? Hmm. Why do we want to be like Why do we want to be like everybody else? I, I don't know. We, it's... we could unite over ramps, Jonah. It's the one thing everybody in Madison can fully get behind. It's, ramps it's versus garages. It's inoffensive, okay? There's a lot we, we could do to unite this city better. But we can be united on this. And by the way, I went to uh, you know I went to a parking ramp, and I talked to someone who I know, and there's a lot of fine parking utility you know people in the booths who are very kind. I know a lot of people get to know them over the years if you're uh, frequent a ramp. Uh, you know what they you know she would I went up to her cold. I was like, what what do you call this thing? And she looked at me, Jonah. And she thought I was testing her, and she called it a garage. And then I said, I would call it a ramp. And then she, like as an aside, said, that's what the employees call it, too. <laughs> and I, I understand even internally, or not internally, but at the at the highest levels of city government, the ramp versus garage, proper nomenclature of ramp hasn't quite taken. Judge Doyle Square, the people, the planning department or whatever, they had no idea they weren't supposed to call it a ramp. They have plans in there for a ramp. They call it a ramp. Dane County Airport, it's a ramp. Their uh, urban land interests own some private ramps that I would say are arguably more of garages, and they're still called ramps. The University of Wisconsin-Madison, they have ramps. They also have a few garages, and it's a little unclear why they use that, but most of them are ramps. So... It just and Dan, that's what we call them here, and the you know the city of Madison. I would say it's been pretty unsuccessful in their uh, nomenclature change, but we'll we'll see. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean I'm not used to advocating for things, Jonah, but I somebody should make this their issue. Okay, just correct a wrong. It was an oversight. I don't blame anybody. The guy we should blame is off in Florida and won't pick up his phone. <laughs> Now he's going to hear this, and then he's going to call me instead of you. Oh, he better. Like, I heard this on your I'm broadcast. I'm on you, Bill Knoblick. And then I'll have to have him on the air to present the other side of this argument. Um, <laughs> Dylan, thanks so much for joining me for what has been a, a fun conversation. Before I let you go, is there anything you want to add to the debate over ramp versus garage? Any parting thoughts? Well, for more hard-hitting investigative journalism... That is super important. Isthmus.com, or, you know, we also put out a monthly paper, and uh, this month's one is another fine example and 
check it out. Newsstands, grocery stores, wherever wherever you find your local Isthmus, it'll be there. I've been joined in the studio by Isthmus reporter Dylan Brogan. Like he said, you can find his full write-up on the Ramp versus Garage debate in the print edition of Isthmus or online at Isthmus.com. Dylan, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Jonah. It's also soda, not pop. Yeah, I agree with that one, actually. And you're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Please stay with us. We have lots more stories coming up. We'll visit some local land art installations. We'll discuss the work of a local nonprofit that offers trauma counseling for children and families. And Radio Chipstone ponders the value of knickknacks. But first, we'll take a quick break, check in on some world headlines, and we'll be right back. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. Have you ever <clears throat> have you ever been to a land art exhibit? Like, what is land art anyway? To find out, WORT contributor Gil Halstead talked to three artists whose land art installations are among those created by the 27 artists at the Natural Path Sanctuary at the Farley Center for Peace, Justice, and Sustainability. The exhibit is called Rooted in the Land, Past, Present, and Future. A quick disclaimer before we jump in, Halstead is the current chair of the board of directors of the Farley Center. Land art, or earth art, is defined as art that is made directly in the landscape, sculpting the land itself into earthworks or making structures in the landscape using natural materials such as rocks or twigs, basically all made from biodegradable materials. This exhibit is spread along trails that wind around a wooded hillside in the town of Springdale, just west of Verona. It's the fifth such exhibit in the sanctuary that's been held every two years, beginning in 2013. One thing that makes this exhibit unique is that the Natural Path Sanctuary is a green cemetery, where to date, more than 100 people have been buried, some with markers and others not. So as you wander through the woods to see the art, you may also pass grave markers or open, empty graves that have been dug for burials that may happen soon. So you should be aware that burials may be taking place, and it's important when you come to view the exhibit that you be respectful of people who may be there to bury a loved one. Near the top of the hill, you'll come across a multi-dimensional piece titled Dandelion Love. Artist Iris Nguyen says part of her purpose in creating this piece was to defend dandelions. We want to sh let people know that they have a purpose, just like we have a purpose in this life. And there's amazing things about them to um, know, because, you know, we have commercial, you know, trying to kill them for decades. So um, that's what people see when they see dandelion. Like, we got to get rid of them. But, um, they have a purpose and it's pretty much there to tell you that the land needs healing and the reason they're there is they're trying to nourish, nourish the, the soil back to um, its perfect state. 
In the center of this piece is an upright log with a laser-cut wooden wood nymph with delicate fairy's wings standing on top of it. She's carrying what at first looks like a parasol over her shoulder, but when you look closely, you see that it's a dandelion. Painted on the log using walnut oil-based paints is a message from the dandelions. When the soil is harmoniously balanced, then I have fulfilled my purpose. You will no longer find me there anymore. Right on the edge of the sanctuary, just below a cornfield that the Farley Center has just purchased with plans to restore it to prairie, you'll find an installation titled The Butterfly Effect. It's the work of Katrina Kruger and her boyfriend, Billy Morgan. It almost looks like a wigwam made of branches woven together, but artist Kruger says it's meant to be a chrysalis, and there is a huge butterfly emerging from it. Here's how Katrina says they created it. To create the structural skeleton, we used untreated wooden popsicle sticks adhered by a natural adhesive made of baking soda, milk, water, and vinegar. We then sewed thin sticks with twine around the outside of the wings to create a more secure structure. The body of the butterfly was created with various branches held together by twine. To finish the butterfly, we used milk paint to create the popping colors that butterflies are best known for. We welcome you to enjoy the butterfly effect and ponder what inspires your own transformation and its influence on each other and our world. If you walk down the path from the butterfly effect towards the bottom of the hill, you'll find a huge spiral of branches and thick wooden vines woven together around a tall tree. The piece is called simply Turn. It's the work of Mona Cassis and her husband, Steve Huer. Steve explains the piece and, uh, this way. People say life is a circle. It really is, in my mind, more of a spiral because it's not really returning. It's moving forward. And, you know, there's seasons and there's patterns. We, you know, we go through that through our lives. But the spiral, I think, is more of a dynamic shape that kind of embodies that, you know, the dynamic aspect of life. That even though there's patterns and a cyclical nature to it, it's also kind of moving us and the rest of the world and the rest of our community forward. So, so that's kind of what the idea is. And I and I kind of also thought, and I knew this was going to be in the sanctuary where you know this is a, a cemetery, and the idea of maybe like a image of a spirit coming out of the ground and moving on, you know, that kind of fit with the location. Woven into the spiral are flowers and cattails, and right in the middle, hanging from slender strings at the center of the spiral, are eight blown eggs. When there's a breeze, they clatter together. Mona Cassis says she added the eggs because she wants the piece to engage all five senses. I like the idea of the whole piece not just being something for your visual, but for like all the senses, hearing and I'm hoping to get something that will smell for the, you know, some lavender or something. And then it's visual, sound, smell. I don't think anyone's going to eat it, but... <laughs> no tasting here. No tasting here. But just something for the, all the senses. So that's a taste of the Rooted in the Land art exhibit awaiting you when you drive out to the Farley Center to take it all in. The exhibit is open from dawn to dusk, seven days a week, through the end of October. Be aware that the weather is likely to have an impact on these biodegradable installations, so 
Depending on storms, wind, and rain, you may find the pieces in various stages of, well, biodegrading. But many artists may be coming out to repair them during the course of the exhibit. For WORT News, I'm Gil Halstead. The Rainbow Project is a local nonprofit that provides counseling for children and families who have experienced trauma. To learn more about the organization and its mission, I spoke with Ms. Cheryl Cato, the Rainbow Project's executive director. I'm speaking with Cheryl Cato, executive director of the Rainbow Project. Thanks for joining us, Cheryl. Thank you so much, Marcus. I'm so glad to be here. And as a note to listeners, in full disclosure, my daughter is a um, employee of the Rainbow Project, and I'm very familiar with the work that you guys do. Could you tell us exactly what is the Rainbow Project? I, I sure will. Um, and in fact, 10 days ago, we uh, celebrated our 41st birthday of the Rainbow Project, serving the uh, Madison-Dane County community. And we're a local nonprofit working with young children, infants through middle school, and their families, and really helping them in many different programs recover from trauma. So when we talk about trauma, we're talking about community violence, uh, child abuse, neglect, domestic violence, and we're much known in that area, child sexual abuse and grief and loss, but also the broader level of trauma, and that might be a serious accident, um, separation uh, from caregivers, other kinds of stresses, including drug-endangered families, child sex trafficking, um, uh, natural disasters uh, as well, because uh, brain development research is showing if we can get in there early, um, we can help prevent post-traumatic stress disorder. So we're focusing on families with young children in particular. So we've worked with about 16,000, over 16,000 children and 16,000 adults, caregivers, and have you know, programs that go from prevention, specialized treatment, as well as crisis services. I'd love to hear exactly how you help families and you deal with trauma. Well, one of the ways in working with children is that they are very naturally, as young children, self-centered. And so when there is abuse or there is a trauma, they often think it is their fault. And they will... Um, really continue to believe that. Um, and so we really want to make sure that the adults around, teachers, uh, everyone is around, who are around the children are aware of the impact of trauma so they can better uh, respond to children. So Marcus, when a child that we see um, is really having a hard time controlling their behavior, their violent behavior, and they may actually even be suspended or expelled. Um, they don't have any other way of telling us, well, you know, we, we, we have emotionally unmet needs, and that's why we're acting out. Um, they really do have a real difficult time regulating their behavior and their emotions and communicating what they're really feeling um, because we're finding out through research that there's so many things that um, are triggering uh, children and adults. Uh, we're so familiar with that when um, adults are in combat, for example. Uh, certain lights or sounds will trigger them. 
uh, if they've been in combat. But very similarly, trauma victims have very similar kinds of experiences. And so we're really trying to help them cope through those, that um, those threats are no longer there, but to help them understand uh, that there is a way of being able to eventually be able to tolerate some of those things and not be triggered. Um, it could be a sight, it could be a smell, it could be a sound um, that would um, interfere in their normal day. Uh, and that includes in the classroom. Um, a child who had been uh, severely abused during the time when the weather was on the news. And so every time she heard weather on the news, she, had, she was uh, feeling traumatized because it was a trigger. So I think those are some of the things that we're seeing and wanting to address so that children can move on uh, in their development in those different ways. We do home visits. We work on parenting individually and as a group. Um, we're really working in many different ways with the early childhood programs and the schools, um, as well as directly with the children. And what we're proud of is, is that we're really able to work with sometimes multiple generations of trauma. So there are the young children, and then there are also the parents, but sometimes we also are working with grandparents, um, and there sometimes has been, um, you know, cases where we're looking at all aspects of health from a trauma, including cultural history of trauma, um, with any of the cultural responsiveness that we really need to be able to have in working with different populations. And so we're really proud of trying to provide partnerships so that we can really help children and families recover from trauma faster. It sounds like you guys do great work over there. And I understand yes. you have a um, fundraiser coming up. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? I would love to. We decided we really needed to have fun when we raised funds. And so uh, this will be our 17th uh, annual. We call it Rumba for Rainbow. Um, and we really bring in um, floor shows from all over the world of champion salsa dancers and performers and live Latin band uh, is, is coming. We're having a youth group that will be performing a Latin um, hip-hop group. Uh, will be performing, and we're really uh, excited about this. And we're having a silent auction. And we're also um, going to be giving out some extra mile awards for the unsung heroes in our community who are doing great work that we partner with um, in the schools and in the community because I think that really is the work that that needs to happen. And as I said, the more we can work together, the faster the the progress um, in, in helping families. Um, COVID has definitely made things more challenging. And so we are knowing that lots of things have closed down, but um, unfortunately trauma does not slow down. Uh, and in fact, we've never been busier um, so we really need to make sure we have safely um, still have our fundraiser. So we're excited about it. Oh, and it's September 17th, <laughs> uh, Friday at UW Union South Varsity Hall. Um, and we promise to have fun, uh, including dance lessons. 
uh, for folks if they wanted. How is Roomba for Rainbow adapting to the pandemic and what safety protocols are, do you guys have in place for the event? What our protocol is going to be really is the uh, matches the uh, University of Wisconsin's protocol for Union South, and that is that we will be asking um, for proof of vaccination um, and or um, uh, proof of a negative COVID uh, test uh, within 72 hours. So either a vaccine uh, validation or proof or uh, proof of a negative um, test, COVID test. And then they will be asked to wear masks um, to really um, uh, really practice safe distancing. Uh, there will be some uh, thermometer checks uh, as folks come in as well. And we already will have that um, posted on um, Google so that there will be some um, <clears throat> elimination of lines and things, but we'll have forms there as well. But we, I think, Marcus, because the population we work with um, when we're talking about infants through middle school, um, they really are not eligible for vaccination safety. So we really want to be careful and thoughtful um, and safe. Uh, and so that is something that we are going to be practicing. Um, but we will also be live streaming as well for people who are not comfortable coming in person. All right. And um, how can people um, like myself um, reach out to the Rainbow Project to volunteer, donate, or attend Roomba for Rainbow? Oh, my goodness. That would be wonderful. Well, definitely um, connect on our website. That's www.therainbowproject.net, all one word. And you will, um, or you can call 608 255-7356 and that would be extension 310 and um, you know ask for questions uh, uh, information about tickets um, or for volunteering we would love to hear from folks um, we will definitely need that um, we need all the help we can get <laughs> and um, but promise it will be fun um, I'd like to thank you for uh, joining us today. And once again, I've been speaking with Cheryl Cato, Executive Director of the Rainbow Project. Um, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Marcus. It's 6.50 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. August, it seems all of Madison moves from one dwelling to another, leaving a treasure trove of discarded items on the curb that locals affectionately call hippie Christmas. Now, no matter if you're moving in, moving out, or staying in place, you're going to need stuff. And that stuff says a lot about who you are as a person. In this archival edition of Radio Chipstone, feature contributor Jennifer Fields takes us all the way back to 1915 and the home and the stuff of Henry Kettle with guidance from Jennifer Von Hopton and Carl Kuppingst of Old World, Wisconsin. 
we portray um, Henry Ketela and his wife in their 50s at this point. So he's had probably about 30 years in the United States to establish himself. And so he gets the farm started first. Then he has the idea, oh, you know, maybe I can sell some things to my neighbors because we have trouble getting them here. So he's going to start stocking some things in the corner of his house just because he can make a little profit off of that. So he's farming and he's selling this stuff. He brings his family over. They build on to their house. He just kind of keeps the business going. He's probably one of our more successful people. Even though this is a historical site and some could call it a museum, you don't feel that way. Every building on site has a very good research background and information about the ethnic group and what their daily chores might have been like and uh, how they might have lived on their farm. So it has a lot of that. But we're always adding new things because you discover things about history that maybe you hadn't uncovered before. And so you keep adding to them. Carl, you're busy. You got soap and water over here. You got something on the stove. You have some, what is it? canning to tend to you got crap in this corner over here to put away <laughs> what's the day in the life of carl like in in this time period in this house you know what i don't think mr kettle would have done all this work i'm just saying well you also have to keep in mind he has three teenage children still at home that can do a lot of the farm chores and his wife is here and dairying is predominantly a women's women's chore in, in a lot of immigrant households they were the ones doing the milking uh, the cream separating probably was a joint venture between the boys and their mother. So the boys could really do a lot of the farm chores, and the Maria, uh, his wife, could do a lot of the farm chores as well, which would free him up to do his sales. So then when I look at this house, you know, I see things that say wealth, but I guess what I'm expecting is some garish sort of um, overture towards wealth. But I well, guess they're just not don't really get that. wealthy. They're still working class, you know, they're still working, maybe starting into middle class by today's classification, but he's still a very small farmer in a very remote part of the state. But at this time, you have different commodities available. They're not as expensive as they would have been earlier, you know, everything Sears from furniture. Roebuck. Thank you very much mm-hmm. to Sears Roebuck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. And out of Chicago. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So the shipping costs wouldn't be that high. Uh, even to northern Wisconsin, at least not as high as maybe California, you have a wide variety, uh, 1,700 pages worth of merchandise available. And it's geared towards that working class and middle class. So it's priced at what they can afford, and it's also things that they're going to want. And we're standing in a room, and we've got the cream separator, and then there's the table, and there's some storage in the corner. Oh, there's a hand crank coffee grinder. Mm-hmm. There's a cabinet here with dishes. There's an area that looks like maybe it was for washing up or for canning. This, how big is this room? Maybe 10 by 20? Probably about 14 by 16, somewhere around there. And you've got like 10 different things going on in mm-hmm. here. Yeah, it's built, room would have been very busy. And even here at the museum, very often it's cluttered with activity. This is where we do all the messy chores. Today we're washing wool. Uh, so we have clean wool for spinning. And tomorrow we'll be using the cream separator. Every day is a different activity, and every day is usually a hot day because we have to have the wood stove going. And what does it say on it? Wood and what? It's our clarion, and it was made in Maine in uh, the early 1900s, very early. It's a wonderful stove. Uh, It has six burner plates, which means it has 
The stovetop is about 20 by 36 inches, and we have an oven and a water reservoir. When would this stove have been added to this household? Probably a little after 1900. Well, how much of a time saver is this? What does this mean to this household to now have this stove in here? Well, you can get a lot more done because you have more space on the stove. So they could do more with the dairy processing because you have room to heat more water to clean up after all of that. After you're milking, you have to wash all the milk buckets. After you're done cream separating, you have to wash the cream separator. So it takes a lot of hot water. Plus, they could do canning and food preservation a lot easier and a lot more reliably. You could boil the jars after they were filled, and you would know that the food was going to keep in the canning jar then. Prior to that, actually in 1900, that's a fairly new concept. Prior to that, you just put food in the jar and sealed it and, and kind of crossed your fingers. So another thing I'm seeing in this, in this very ornate cabinet over here, I'm seeing china. I'm seeing fine china and I'm seeing candlesticks. So now are we seeing signs that perhaps they also still entertained? Coming out of the Victorian era, there's still this idea of you need to show off a little bit of your wealth. And, you know, our immigrants are not immune to that. And, I, you know, if I know Henry, he's probably always trying to make a buck. And so if he shows that he's doing very well with some of these fine things from places, maybe he can sell some of that out of his store. This has always been a commercial society. We always try to think of the past as being, oh, so simple and nobody had stuff well as soon as they got stuff or as soon as they got money or ways to get stuff they wanted to add we all want to add stuff to our lives and i think people back then are no different than us now for wort i'm jennifer fields and that's a wrap for wort's live local news at six special thanks to feature contributors jennifer fields gil halstead and myself Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Jonah Chester produced this newscast. And Ms. Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Don't forget to download the WORT app so you can get your favorite music shows on demand. And stay up to date with WORT's local news podcast. Subscribe wherever you subscribe for your podcasts. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Good night.